Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Today, we are talking about mindfulness and cognitive-based treatments for chronic pain management. If you've been following along with the Healing Pain Podcast, you know that we talk a lot about mindfulness-based treatments for pain, as well as the various types of cognitive behavioral approaches, including cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and even pain neuroscience education. But we have yet to explore the mechanisms as to why these approaches work, or if there's one that works better for certain populations. Here to speak to us about the what, why, and how of mindfulness-based chronic pain management techniques is clinical psychologist, Dr. Melissa Day. Melissa completed her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Alabama, and now works as an award-winning pain researcher in Australia. Her research focuses on randomized trials to evaluate the efficacy and mechanisms of mindfulness and cognitive behavioral interventions for the treatment of many chronic pain conditions. She also recently published a book titled Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Chronic Pain, a clinical manual and guide. You can, of course, find that on Amazon. On today's episode, you'll learn the rationale for applying mindfulness-based approaches for chronic pain management, how mindfulness-based approaches are unique from cognitive behavioral therapy, the evidence supporting mindfulness-based approaches for chronic pain management, and who might a mindfulness-based treatment for chronic pain best be suited for. Okay, I know you're going to enjoy this episode because we really get down into the weeds as to why mindfulness and cognitive-based treatments work for people with chronic pain or how they can help people with chronic pain cope better and more effectively. So let's begin and let's meet Dr. Melissa Day. Hi there, Melissa. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. I came across your work probably a couple of months ago. I was out there researching a little bit about mindfulness and how mindfulness was related to chronic pain, specifically mindfulness meditation and then mindfulness-based mm-hmm. stress reduction. And then, of Mm -hmm. course, that always leads to CBT and boom, popped up a great article that you wrote in the June 2019 Journal of Pain called Moderators of Mindfulness, Meditation, Mm -hmm. CBT, and Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapies for Chronic Low Back Pain. And in there, you start to slowly tweeze apart all these different types of psychological interventions, the mechanisms, and how they can be used by practitioners and when they Mm -hmm. might be more appropriate. So I'm really excited that you're here to talk Mm -hmm. to us about all this. I guess a good place to start, when I think back to the history in this podcast, we've talked a lot about mindfulness and how it relates to pain. It's a topic people are really interested in. Can you tell us why a practitioner or a patient even should be or would be interested in mindfulness-based interventions for chronic pain? For pain specifically? That's a multifaceted answer to that, actually. But if we look at it from a fundamental level of pain, We don't know we're in pain until that signal reaches the brain and is processed in the brain. So even though there is some peripheral processing, most of the processing of pain happens above the spinal cord level in the brain. And if we put people who are in pain, if we put them an MRI scanner, it's not just the somatosensory cortex that lights up, you know, just this specific area of pain, whole areas of the brain that are lighting up that are interconnected. If we look at the amygdala, the emotion center is lighting up. It's very rare for you to stub your toe and not be irritated at that. 
typically you have an emotional reaction to pain. So then we get the amygdala lighting up. Then maybe the thoughts fire up. Maybe you say some choice words in response to stubbing your toe. So now we've got the prefrontal cortex involved. And in chronic pain, basically your brain is constantly processing pain. All these pathways and interconnections in these other areas of the brain get strengthened. And so what that means is actually that points of intervention for treating pain actually go beyond just this sensory aspect of it because we can target any one of those neurological links and that shifts the processing of pain in the brain and it shifts our experience of pain. So we can target those cognitions, we can target those anticipatory responses, we can target the emotional responses. And mindfulness does that. Mindfulness meditation actually targets each one of those links. And so with meditation, it's not just fluff. Really what we're doing is we are retraining the brain and we're retraining those pathways to process the pain in a different way. So instead of the alarm bells going off in the brain, which ramps up pain processing, we can sort of quieten down those links. It doesn't cure pain. We don't have a cure for chronic pain, but it does change the experience of pain and change the impact of pain. Yeah, great way to start out. It's so exciting right now, I think, for both practitioners as well as people who have pain who are looking for solutions. Because as you mentioned, there's clinical research as well as function MRIs that are really pointing towards mindfulness as simple and effective ways that are accessible for patients, which of course is important. We want things to be accessible. In the world of psychology, which of course you're a part of, there was kind of that first wave of psychological therapies, if you will, like a more behavioral, kind of mm -hmm. very basic. Then the second wave is more cognitive. And then mm -hmm. finally, now we're kind of in the midst of the meat and bones, uh, meat and potatoes, you will, of like the third wave, which is mm -hmm. more of the mindfulness-based approaches, which mm -hmm. you're researching and looking deep into. Just on a, on a more research level, how did you become interested in the more mindfulness-based aspects of chronic pain? Mm -hmm. Long story, but I'll try to keep it brief. But actually, from a young age, I trained to be a professional tennis player. And as I was training for tennis, that's a big part of that is actually training your mind as well. So I was practicing yoga and meditation back then. And unfortunately, tennis is what took me to the US from Australia. And unfortunately, I got injured. And it was pain that was the end of that career. And yeah, originally, I thought, well, perhaps I can beef up my meditation. And maybe I can learn to do that so I can keep playing tennis. But unfortunately, it didn't work that way, but it did open up this doorway to non-pharmacological pain management. And I was a nerd at the time as well, so certainly was happy to study this to the nth degree. And here we are. I'm a clinician as well. I work with patients and you can see the difference it makes. Typically, we do eight-week programs. You can just see the shifts in the way people walk, their face, their energy, even their eyes. You can see the difference it makes, and that's reinforcing to know that the research that you're doing has a clinical impact, and you can see it with the patients you're working with. Yeah. Tell us the difference between traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and a mindfulness-based uh, approach to pain. And I guess maybe we should talk about it from a psychological intervention. So of course, mindfulness meditation, you can go to a mindfulness center, maybe, maybe working with someone who's certified in mindfulness. But of course, in your case, we're talking about licensed professionals who, of course, have a license to evaluate and treat patients who are working with pain. What's the difference mm -hmm. in the two different types of approaches and I guess their delivery in clinical practice? So I think that's an important point because there's so many apps out there and there's no problem with those apps. 
but it's very different from actually receiving a clinical intervention from a trained professional where you're actually learning how to, just learning techniques, you're learning techniques to apply them specifically for pain management. So that's a big difference right there. And so coming back to your question about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT is the gold standard. Research has been accumulating on this approach since the 80s, massive amount of efficacy. And what that treatment is targeted to do in brief is that really we're looking at, we know that unhelpful cognitions and unhelpful behaviors basically predict worse outcomes with chronic pain over time. So we're looking at cognitions like pain catastrophizing, which is one of the most robust predictors. So pain catastrophizing is a negative mental set about actual or anticipated pain. And so with cognitive behavioral therapy, a key technique is cognitive restructuring. And really that aims to change those cognitions. So it's explicitly designed to change the cognitions. The behavioral techniques in CBT, those are also explicitly designed to change behaviors. So we know that sedentary behavior, inactivity, previously we used to say, oh, rest when you have low back pain, but we know that's one of the worst things that we can actually do with low back pain. And so CBT targets changing those behaviors. Mindfulness-based approaches, on the other hand, come at it from a different perspective. So while CBT is quite change-focused, mindfulness-based approaches are really focused on not changing the experience per se, whether that be pain or cognitions, but actually shifting the way that we relate to those experiences. And so shifting the way we respond to those experiences. And so in that way, we're actually learning that we can't change pain, actually. If we could change pain, we could cure it and we wouldn't have any need for psychological interventions. But really what we're learning here is that instead of seeing pain and going, oh, I hate it, I don't like it, this is ruining my life, um, we can see all that and we can just mindfully notice that, observe it. And instead of adding that extra baggage onto the pain, with meditation, we're kind of learning to let go of that extra baggage, which we know loads up pain. So it's, I find it interesting because even though CBT and mindfulness come at it from different angles, I feel like they're different pathways to perhaps ultimately the same destination. Yeah, potentially all roads lead to Rome. For people who listen to this podcast, so they're familiar with the term mindfulness. They're familiar mm -hmm. with cognitive behavioral therapy. I've interviewed a lot of people in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as mm -hmm. ACT. Mm -hmm. And then you, in, in your paper, you started looking into mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So right there, mm -hmm. there's four right there. There's mindfulness, CBT, mm -hmm. ACT, and NBCT, which you've talked about too, right? You've talked about mindfulness and you've talked about CBT. If you can mm -hmm. just touch on ACT and mindfulness-based CBT and maybe a difference and a similarity to them, so people can kind of have some context about what we're about to talk about with regard to the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy first because it's related to what I was just talking about because mindfulness-based cognitive therapy essentially combines elements of CBT with mindfulness aspects but without the change focus. So essentially in MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, I'll, I'll say that rather than all these acronyms. You know, so mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, really what we're looking at is using the cognitive behavioral techniques to enhance awareness. Your basic scientific principle is observing something typically changes something. 
And so when we can have these cognitive behavioural techniques to enhance awareness of thought patterns, like uh, typical Beckian cognitive patterns of fortune-telling, mind-reading, black-and-white thinking, overgeneralization, all these patterns that get in our way, essentially, when we can use the CBT techniques to enhance awareness of that, we then use the meditation to apply this non-judgmental attitude to be able to let those go so that they don't get stuck in our heads so much. Same with the behavioural piece of MBCT, enhancing awareness of what are we doing in our days? How are we filling our time? Are those activities fulfilling our needs? Are they moving us in a direction that's valued? And if they're not, how do we shift the balance there so that we can schedule in more nourishing activities, activities that top up our resources, energize us versus these depleting activities that you know, most of us do on autopilot um, without even realizing. So in that way, I think MBCT brings in a combination of the two approaches, which I find works well. ACT, on the other hand, acceptance and commitment therapy also has a building evidence base and building efficacy for chronic pain. And I think this is really important because we need a menu of options for patients. Not everyone wants or responds well to mindfulness-based approaches. Not everyone wants or responds well to CBT. And so when we can have these menu of options that are evidence-based, shown to work by research, then we can give patients a treatment that hopefully is well-suited to them to optimise outcome. And I think this is important because ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, is based on a different theoretical model and rationale. So oftentimes acceptance commitment therapy and mindfulness are lumped together, which I think is somewhat unfortunate because they are based on different theoretical models. So acceptance and commitment therapy is really based on relational frame theory and also the psychological flexibility model. There's some overlap there, you know, present moment focused awareness and some mindfulness techniques sometimes are delivered in acceptance and commitment therapy. But you know, really it's the theory underlying treatments that as a clinician really guides you in what direction to take therapy. And so I think that is quite important. But all of these treatments, I believe, have a building evidence base, CBT obviously the gold standard, but we need more options so that we can find the one treatment that works best for a given patient in front of us. One of the things I loved about your research is you started and you have started to a really great extent to look at, okay, who might do better with mindfulness meditation? Who might mm -hmm. do better with CBT? Who might do better with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? Can mm -hmm. you explain to us some of the, what you've really unearthed with some of that research with regard to picking one of those out of the hat blindly versus saying, hey, I just mm -hmm. evaluated this patient and it looks like cognitive-based, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is best for this patient. Mm -hmm. So that is where we're moving right now. You know, the first step is to show, yes, these treatments are effective, they're safe, they're beneficial. And now I'm moving more towards questions of mechanisms, understanding how, and I'm particularly interested in understanding for whom do we give these treatments. You know, oftentimes in the clinical setting, we've been touting evidence-based practice now for quite some time. And so oftentimes that's just like, okay, what works? What's the patient preferences? What do I do? Or any number of things. And then we put this on the patient. But unfortunately, that evidence that we're using to guide evidence-based practice is based on group averages. And so within those group averages, there's some individuals that have responded exceptionally well, large effect size improvements. 
Um, then there's some people that might have got worse, might have stayed the same, but we lump them together, we get this average. And so my collaborators and I, our view is that evidence-based practice without that knowing the moderators of treatment is perhaps not truly evidence-based practice because maybe that treatment is not evidence-based for that individual. And so typically in the past, when we've looked at moderators, it's been this sort of after-the-fact analysis. So we randomised controlled trial, then we might look at, well, sex or race or education level and seeing if they interact with treatment. But we have actually come up with a theoretical model, the Limit Activated Enhanced model that we're testing now that has a theoretical basis for why a certain individual should respond better to treatment X, Y, or Z. And that's important, particularly right now where precision medicine is really a big topic area at the moment. And what we're doing here, this is basically precision medicine. What medicine in terms of psychological treatment here for a given individual? And we are finding that this model, yeah, it's tentative, it's preliminary, but we're, it's the first, the initial framework, and we're finding some evidence for it which I think is particularly exciting because as a clinician, it can help you in that decision-making process to know which treatment for this person in front of me. You're the first person on this entire podcast over the course of two years who's mentioned precision medicine. (laughs) I want to sit on that just for a minute. It's so important Mm -hmm. because when you look at the research into chronic pain, of course, chronic pain, like many of the non-communicable chronic diseases, responds Mm -hmm. to lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Under the umbrella of lifestyle, there are many, many different things that can help lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And you have practitioners and other people. And a a lot of times I get emails from patients that are saying, Mm -hmm. well, I'm changing my diet and I'm meditating and I'm doing this, Mm -hmm. I'm doing that. They're doing like Mm -hmm. 10 different things. Yeah. As a behavioral specialist, you know that the behavior change to one, take that on and two, sustain that can be so challenging for people. Mm -hmm. So the idea of precision medicine is so important. And then the idea that you're boiling down or trying to really figure out what the mechanisms and the moderators are for all these different types of, let's just call them cognitive behavioral therapies as a Mm -hmm. blanket term, which may Mm -hmm. or may not fit for certain people. But I just Mm -hmm. think it's so important. And we really haven't spoke about it on the podcast. So thanks for bringing that up. So with regard to pain catastrophizing, which is probably one of the biggest moderators that we have looked at, people are familiar with Beth Darnell's work from this podcast Mm -hmm. and my Mm -hmm. talks with her. Mm-hmm. Where does catastrophizing fit into these three different techniques that you've evaluated and researched? Mm-hmm. So I think catastrophizing, really, the, I did a presentation on this a few months back. Catastrophizing is a biggie. And what we are finding, we as in the field broadly, not just my research, but we have, you know, my collaborators and I have contributed, that we're actually finding that when evidence-based treatments, when they target catastrophizing, that seems to be a pivotal driver of the positive outcomes that are observed. So we have found that changes in pain catastrophizing actually underlie improvement in not just cognitive behavioral therapy, which explicitly targets those cognitions, but in my research, I found that it is a mechanism of mindfulness-based meditation, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, cognitive therapy, Other researchers have found that it's a mechanism of pain education as well as CBT. And it gets better. Even physical therapy works because it shifts pain catastrophizing. So this is like this meta mechanism, one ring to rule them all almost, you know, that it seems to be that if we can shift that, that really that's when we start seeing success for patients. 
I think this is interesting though, because in my trial that I just finished, lo and behold, like a number of patients said to me, oh, I haven't got any stress in my life. Mm. <laughs> and they didn't have any catastrophic cognitions. You know, I was like, what? People without stress in their life? I mean, I am living in Queensland. There's a lot of laid back people here. And so it's interesting though, because if you've got a treatment that just targets catastrophizing and you have an individual that is not catastrophizing, that treatment's not going to work. Yeah. And so again, I think this speaks to the importance of in efficacy trials, we've been looking at group averages. I think at the moment, mechanisms are hot. We're looking at mediators, but we're still looking at group averages in terms of mediators. So we really need to get at that more nuanced level with person with these presenting characteristics, what's the key driver we need to shift for this individual? So it might be catastrophizing. We know that's a biggie across a lot of treatments on average, but it might be perhaps they're a bit of a couch potato. Maybe they need to get up and move more. Maybe they need that behavioral activation or possibly they actually have strengths that we can tap into and enhance. And we can build on those strengths, broaden and build on those strengths to improve outcomes. So, yep, catastrophizing is a biggie and it's not the be all and end all, but it is massive <laughs> all the same. You brought physical therapy into the conversation, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are more and more physical therapists that are interested in psychologically informed care. So it makes mm -hmm. sense that if they're weaving that in, that they could be and are targeting catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. But let's say there's a more traditionally trained biomedical, biomechanical physical therapist. How might they be unknowingly influencing pain catastrophizing in their treatment? Mm -hmm. So I think this kind of ties into Blayen's work where the fear avoidance model and if you shift people's fear of movement, which I think physical therapists are exceptionally good at working with people to overcome their fears of movement, overcome their fears of bending. They gently build them up to be able to do those movements. And basically, that becomes a way that, oh, my spine didn't crumble when I bend. And all of a sudden, the behavioral actions discount the catastrophic cognitions. And so it's kind of working in a different direction but still nonetheless shifting catastrophic cognition. So if you've got fear of movement, that fear is because something bad is going to happen if I do this. You do the movement, that bad thing you expected didn't happen, so it kind of weakens the cognition. So I think we are, again, approaching it from different ways, but it makes sense theoretically and I think also on a person level. Yeah, excellent. Beautifully said. So fear of movement, combine that with a little bit of graded exposure where you have mm -hmm. some support, encouragement, yeah. maybe some correct pain education, and mm -hmm. boom, you hit a similar cognition, shall we say, that could help people. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Is there someone for whom mindfulness-based treatment is not suited for? I think this might come down to perhaps all treatments. If people, one thing we know that's sort of been shown time and time again is that positive expectations coming into any treatment, even surgery, has a strong impact on the outcome of surgery, of psychological treatments, physical therapy. So if we have individuals that think it's fluff and really has such negative expectations about it and they're not the slightest bit open or curious, 
that's going to be difficult as a therapist to sort of overcome those obstacles to really get into the training. That said, I've had some proclaimed skeptics come into my meditation programs. And by the end of it, they've got their daughters meditating, their partners meditating. So skepticism is healthy. So no problem. But if you're that sort of, it's beyond skepticism and it's like, "Mm -mm, this is not going to do anything for me. I'm here because I have to be really those types of people. This It's not a good use of their time and not a good use of healthcare resources at that point. And so positive expectations or at least openness to a certain degree, I think, is needed for pretty much any treatment. And the programs that you're using with your patients and your clients, is it primarily a mindfulness program that you're using or is it mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? And it's the frequency and duration. So people have an idea because, of course, we mentioned before the idea of apps. I mean, you can literally go to YouTube and download, quote unquote, free meditations and people do that and sometimes are disappointed. Mm -hmm. What does it look mm-hmm. like if someone to come into your clinic and sign up for one of your meditation programs? Mm-hmm. So if we look at mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which in our trial at long-term had significantly greater effect sizes, actually pain interference, depression, physical function, than just mindfulness meditation. So if it's okay, I'll talk about that one. That program, the way a traditional delivery of that is an eight-week program, and in those eight weeks, we meet two hours a week in person, and in those two hours, I give, I think it's important for any of us to know why we are doing something when we're asked to do it. So in those sessions, I really provide the rationale for why are we doing this explicitly for pain management. Then we practice and learn techniques. We do exercises in the groups. And across the eight weeks, the meditation builds progressively in complexity. And patients, it's not just you come in for two hours a week and that's it. Wouldn't it be nice if that were the case and that would work? But really, it's that between session practice as well that they do at home. So we encourage at least 45 minutes of practice. But I'm a realist, so I also give people 20-minute versions of the meditation techniques and even a three-minute meditation, which we ask people to schedule into their day three times a day. And so it's often in a group setting. I really like delivering these programs in a group context because people learn from each other, they motivate each other, they support each other, they feel like they're not alone. So I feel like that's an important part of the treatment approach as well. And yeah, we found after those eight weeks of treatment, that we got significant improvements and um, that patients benefited from it uh, out to our six-month follow-up. And we actually even got changes. We did EEG, brain state measurements before and after treatment, and we even got shifts in brain state as a function of these eight-week programs. So I think that's important because, again, for healthy skeptics, seeing this on a neurological level changing the brain, I think that's important in terms of evidence and overcoming perhaps stigma associated with these treatments. Right. So people don't feel like they're just sitting with their eyes closed and quote unquote, nothing's happening. When you have some of those reports, you can share them and people see, wow, something's really changing inside Mm -hmm. of me, so to speak. I think it's important because so many people feel like when they get referred to a program like this, oh, that means my doctor thinks the pain is all in my head. That's important for me. And so I think that's an important message to get out to the public as well. So it's interesting because in the world of physical therapy, we kind of started with really finding out the one technique that worked best for chronic pain. And now we've come to the conclusion that 
It's physical therapies usually combined with psychological therapy, so to speak, and there's a myriad of different ways to do that. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if as you start to maybe reflect on your experience and think about the Mm -hmm. future of psychological therapies for chronic pain, do you think we'll, of course, figure out which technique is appropriate for which population of people, but might we also discover that combining two techniques might be equally effective as well? Yeah, I think that's particularly important. And even though I'm a clinical psychologist, we talk about CBT as the gold standard of our treatment. Ultimately, the true gold standard is an interdisciplinary approach. So a team of individuals working together to optimize treatments. And I think, yes, if we can work towards understanding mechanisms across the board, physical therapy, as well as psychological therapies, that we can actually then work on combinations to synergistically optimize those changes in mechanisms. Possibly somebody needs a course in motivational interviewing, for example, to get them motivated to engage in physical therapy. That's just one example of possibly a synergistic intervention there where we can work together. But when I was in the pain clinic in Seattle, I actually worked alongside the physical therapists as they're going through their sessions. And that worked marvelously well for patients. So I think that's definitely an exciting future line of work for sure. Yeah. I've been speaking with Melissa Day. She's, of course, a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of pain and looking at mindfulness-based chronic pain management. Make sure you check out her article in the June 2019 Journal of Pain called Moderators of Mindfulness Meditation, CBT, and Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Chronic Low Back Pain. Melissa, Thanks for joining us. If people want to learn more information about you and stay abreast of your research, where can they follow you and find you? Sure. Uh, Well, I work at the University of Queensland in the School of Psychology. So if you go to the University of Queensland website and Google my name, Melissa Day, you'll be able to find me there. Excellent. So make sure you check out Melissa Day at the University of Queensland website. Of course, I'll include that link on the show notes at the Integrative Pain Science Institute. I want to thank Melissa for joining us today all the way from Queensland. We appreciate her time and her expertise. And make sure you share this interview with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever your friends are hanging out, wherever your colleagues are who are interested in mindfulness-based chronic pain management. I'm Dr. Joe Tata, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's Integrative Pain Science Institute. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.